Welcome back to D&J's Epic Quest. I am Jay Rule, and this is... Derek Cronus. Feels good to be back, ma'am. It does feel good to be back. It's uh, nice knowing that I can read Chapter 5 now, after we're done. I don't know if I'm going to read it tonight, but yeah, it'll be nice to be able to read it. too. So, Yeah, damn it. Yeah. Oh, well. The show must go on. Right, the show must go on. I don't know if I'll watch it or not. It depends on how late we run. I most assuredly will not watch it tonight, but I'm definitely going to have to re I was trying to rewatch the first season and I've just been so busy. I, I haven't, but I'll have to rewatch the second season um, before we record with Jim and Zach, not this Saturday, but the following. And we're just talking the show or are we talking the books? Both. I'm sure it'll probably be some both. But I think it's more geared towards the show. Got it. Got it. Cool. Well, I so, think I don't have anything but like good things to say about season two. So you don't have good things to say. I have nothing but good things to say. Oh, okay. Yeah. I was like, oh, I thought you were liking it. Uh, yeah. Okay. I mean, there's definitely some things that are a little weird about it, but I guess for an adaptation, I don't. Okay. It works. Yeah. It's uh, it's been fun. I'll be. Uh, I probably won't get to watch it tomorrow either. So. Uh, I I don't know. <laughs> it's just been busy with, I mean, work's been busy and then, you know, reading and trying to get our summaries done. And I feel like our summaries are getting longer and longer <laughs> um, as these last two books have gone on. And then my hockey season started and kids stuff. So school. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I feel like by about November, things kind of just slow down for a little bit and then the holidays kick up. So yeah, and I'm going to be gone for damn near half the month of November, so we'll have to... Uh, we're going to go visit my sister in North Carolina. Um, she's getting married. They're already married, but she's having like... A reception. A reception, yeah. They didn't get to do that. So they're doing. They're getting married on Veterans Day, which is November 11th. Um, so we're going to drive down there, and then... I think the plan is to be back Monday sometime. And then uh, that Thursday of that same week, I'm flying to Miami. And I'm coming back the following Tuesday before Thanksgiving. Well, we've got at least four in the bank. 
one that I'm working on currently, which should be out beginning of probably Monday, like it always is. Um, and then we still have another curse episode that I haven't gotten to yet. And then this will be the second Memories of Ice chapter. So we're sitting, we're sitting fine. I think that if we keep recording the way that we do, we'll always have three in the bank. So there'll still be episodes coming out weekly, even though we're not recording. And we'll see what things are like. I mean, I'm going to be in. So my wife has a work conference in Miami. Her work is paying for her flight and stuff, but it was cheaper for me to buy a flight Thursday than go Friday. And it was cheaper to come back Tuesday instead of Monday. So, oh, darn, I got to stay in Florida an extra day, two oh, days God. in November compared to Minnesota. It's, right. I don't know. I don't know how I'm going to do it, Justin, but I'm going to have to manage. Yeah, I'm sure you'll figure it out. <laughs> right. So, yeah. All right. Well, we got some things on the plate and that's that's totally fine. I'm just I'm excited that I don't like I feel like for the most part with Memories of Ice, like I'm not being tripped over a lot. I feel like a lot of this is super understandable to me. And I don't know if that's just like I'm somewhat versed in the Malazan universe now or. Yeah, uh, I agree. Um, yeah, this book, I mean, it's well, and even I guess Deadhouse Gates didn't seem that the story was easy to follow, but it was just kind of like, OK, well, I got to get used to a new setting, new characters. But aside from that, like it made sense um, in this book where it's characters we know and at least a continent that we know might be different places in the continent and and some of them are not but yeah very understandable and honestly i know when we read this chapter i text you and i was like this is kind of fucking boring this chapter except for like the last few pages i was just like holy shit and i was like oh man where's this going like like oh i hope justin has this section to summarize and you didn't i'm like ah oh, fuck like this is gonna be so good i can't wait to hear him talk about it but upon rereading the chapter, I'm like, okay, this is not as boring as I thought. The beginning was maybe a little slow, but there's a lot of good stuff here. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely some setup pieces. You know, the first section is kind of like, a, I'm like, what? Why is this here? But Yeah. And that's where I was like, oh, this is kind of boring. So it's cool. But hey, should we get into uh, Silverstones here? Yeah. Well, y'all, as we've been ranting on for the last month and a half, two months now, uh, please go check out silverstonesbooks.com. They have been gracious enough to give us a code, uh, DJ Quest. Use that when you check out uh, from their site. Pick up a book, save a little cash while supporting some indie authors. Definitely. And um, I believe their GoFundMe is still open uh, as far as trying to accumulate a little capital towards a physical retail store. Um, so if, if you have the means, um, I'm sure they would appreciate that. I'm sure they'd probably appreciate book sales just as much. So, yeah, I, I really hope you can get a physical store. It would be cool to go down there and, and check it out and say hi in person. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And our patrons, in order of subscription... We have Jan, the Picker of Pies, Luciana Etrigan, Ryan, the Topological, Damien, the Rock of Faces, Nate, Fiddle Me This, Shield Anvil Dillon, Quartermaster, Master Sergeant Lieutenant Parker, I wanted to say Picker for some reason, and David Mullally. David, we still need a nickname. Um, 
I'm not sure if you're current on episodes, but uh, shoot us a message here if you've got something you would like for a nickname. Otherwise, I don't know. Just kind of shooting from the hip here. We could go David Munnig, but I don't know. <laughs> I don't know <laughs> I don't if know. he would like that one. <laughs> yeah. Like I said, I was just shooting from the hip there. Fair enough. How about Moo would Mallet? You... What's that? Uh, Moo Mallet. I don't know. Or you could just go David Mallet. I don't, I don't know. Mallet seems like to be a cool character. Or Mallet Mullally. Mallet Mullally. There we go. Eminem. Sounds good. Putting it down. All right. There you go, David. You uh, have been esteemed with a nickname now. You are now officially a bridge burner. <laughs> um, also, patrons. I know that uh, Patreon has had some some updates. I haven't had a chance to look at them, but I would imagine by the time that you uh, are listening to this episode that I probably have. So I want to say that there's some potential for some merchandise which i'm thinking about making a shirt that says get your quest on i'm not sure where that goes but that's just at the top of my head so um i looked in the app and i i don't know if this will be the same on your end but it appeared that all our messages were gone or, which i was kind of bummed about because we had some like cool interactions with our friends yeah um, maybe they delete after a certain amount of time i don't yeah i don't know or if, if it was the update that did it because obviously like the messages are staggered but every one of them was gone yeah i don't no. see it oh well, I see it. they're there they're, okay well maybe yeah. it's just maybe i didn't wait long enough for them to load or something i don't know you got to click the little envelope in the upper right hand corner all right well as long as they're there that's i feel better about that yeah they're there cool um would you like to take our bfe for this chapter our big fucking epigraph. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, Dujek one arm and his army awaited the arrival of Caladan Brood and his allies. This is the wrong chapter summary, Justin. <laughs> we are in episode five. There we go. God. Chapter four there, buddy. Big fucking epigraph. Let me go grab it. Oh, I, I mean, if you don't have your book, Andy, I, I've got mine. I just thought maybe... No, I've got it uh, handy. Just okay. I just it was on the shelf. I yeah. All right. Mark these three. They are all that give shape, all that lie beneath the surface of the world. These three. They are the bones of history. Sister of cold nights. Betrayal greets your dawn. You chose to trust the knife, even as it found your heart. Draconis, blood of TM. Darkness was made to embrace your soul, and these chains that now that now hold you they are of your own fashioning cruel yours was the path the sleeping goddess chose a thousand and more years ago and she sleeps still even as you awaken the time has come ancient one to once more walk among the mortals and make of your grief the sweetest gift anomanduris fisher keltoth that is a big fucking epigraph that was a big fucking epigraph um, I kind of like BFE. I think that might stick for the BFEs that we run across. Yep. I like it. <laughs> this epigraph right. also got me thinking, and I'm wondering if we'll, we'll probably cover it in the last section here. So, All right. Any, anything else before we venture forth here? I feel like I kind of cut you off asking you to do the BFE. I don't remember what I was going to say. 
Oh, well, I'm sorry it's, I cut you off. It's cool, man. All right, here we go. Uh, also, I guess, did, did we ever get any uh, confirmation on how to pronounce? Is it Stony? Stony? Um, I would imagine it's Stony. Okay. All right. I'll go with Stony. Arlo and Stony Manakis came from behind the carriage covered in mud as it made its way up the slope. Gruntle leaned back against the buckboard while Harlow called him a bastard and said it served them right for making a bet with him. Gruntle always wins. Stoney looked at her clothes and said they were ruined, then damned Gruntle as he was the biggest and should have been helping push, not sitting up high and dry. Gruntle smiled and said he taught hard lessons. Besides, they were done for the day and it looked like they needed a swim. Harlow didn't appreciate the comment and asked what the hell he thought they were doing this whole time. Gruntle told him it sounded like they were drowning and that the clean water was upstream. Gruntle gathered the reins and had to convince the horses to move and got them off to one side of the ford. There were other merchants camped nearby, those that had also just crossed while others prepared to cross and head to Darugistan. Over the past few days, the situation at the crossing had become more hectic as whatever was left of the stones underwater had been pushed deeper into the mud. It had taken four hours to cross, and at one point, Gruntle wondered if they'd ever make it. He climbed down to inspect the horses while Harlow and Stoney argued, heading upstream. He looked uneasily at the massive wagon that had crossed before them and thought it had been an unfair bet, which, of course, was the best kind. Harlow and Stoney were dead set that they wouldn't cross today. That humongous carriage would get bogged down ahead of them, and it would sit there until everyone behind got too impatient and would have to eventually lend their strength to get it out. Gruntle thought otherwise. He didn't think Bauchelain and Corbel Broach uh, were the type to tolerate an inconvenience. And besides, they're sorcerers. It seemed as if their wagon glided across the water, even though Gruntle knew the footing was an uneven mess underwater. But at least he was drying clean. There had been enough odd things happening that the sorcerers were afforded an amount of privacy. So when he saw a caravan guard approach their camp, he grew interested. Gruntle knew the man well enough, a, dar a Daru named Buke. He knew the man preferred working alone, and Gruntle happened to know why. Buke's master had tried to cross earlier in the day, and the shitty wagon had fallen apart in the water. Buke had managed to save his master from drowning, and as a reward, he was released from his service. Gruntle figured he'd be he'd head back to the city as he had a healthy horse. There would be a three-hour tour. I mean, a three-day ride. Yet, here he was, talking to Amansa Porterese. Though Gruntle couldn't hear the conversation, he could follow it based on their body language. Buke's shoulders dropped, and Reese half-turned away. At that moment, Bauchelain came forward in his black cape. Buke straightened up and answered a few questions, and then a respectful nod. Bauchelain put a hand on Reese's shoulder, and the man nearly buckled. Gruntle thought that the touch of the mage on an average man's shoulder would be more than enough for him to shit his pants. Baru Fend, Buke. He had been hired. Gruntle hoped he wouldn't regret it. Fires were especially dangerous in Darujistan, even more so if gas was involved. A blaze had killed Buke's wife, mother, and four kids. And the fact that he was laying face down in the alley passed out hadn't helped his recovery. Gruntle and others assumed he would turn to drinking to cope with the loss, but he did the opposite, 
taking contracts with poor and vulnerable merchants. After they, after all, they were robbed more than the rich ones. Gruntle decided he must want to die fighting, quickly and even honorably. And when he's sober, he's actually a capable fighter. At least a dozen highwaymen can attest to that claim. The chill in the air that seemed to follow Bauchelaine, and especially Corporal Broach, would be enough to keep any sane guard away. Though a man who welcomed death would have a different eye about it. Gruntle again wished that Buke wouldn't regret his choice, as it was more likely he would be the one inflicting violence rather than suffering it. Buke fetched his horse and gear while Gruntle started a cook fire. Along the way, he talked to Emancipor Reese and eventually made his way back to Gruntle's fire. He asked Buke if he would like to join for tea that he was brewing for Harlow and Stoney. Buke accepted. Gruntle said it was an unfortunate event that had taken place with his former employer. Buke said he tried to stop, but he would not listen, and he saved him from drowning. Apparently, a brush with death had put him in a foul mood. Looking at his new masters, Buke asked if Gruntle had any experience with them. Gruntle said yes, and he should have asked for his advice before accepting employment. Buke said that he had always respected his advice, but whatever he had to say would not have changed his mind. Gruntle said he would say no more on the matter. Buke said he caught a glimpse of Corporal Broach and that he is the killer. Gruntle said he didn't really see a difference between them. Buke said he didn't understand. For two weeks in Daruzhistan, there had been mangled corpses found in the Gadrobi district every night. The investigators called in a mage to help. The mage discovered something, and whatever it was, scared him. Buke was able to obtain a few details. Vorkin's guild was enlisted, and it was the council itself that had given out the contract. Find the killer by whatever means necessary. Then the murder stopped. Gruntle said he had a vague memory of some sort of fuss. Buke said he thought it was... Buke said he thought he was in quips, blind drunk for days on end. Gruntle said he had his eye on Lethro, and he had went out on a contract. And by the time he came back, Buke finished his sentence and said that he had found her married to another man. And it wasn't just some other guy, but one of his old masters. And who was the killer? And why did the killing stop? Because Vorkin's guild never took the council's coin. Buke said the murders had stopped because the murderer left the city. He knew it was Corbel Broach, the man with the round face and fat lips. He just knew it. Who could abide the murder of innocence? The dude abides. Gruntle realized that Buke meant to kill him or die trying. He told Buke that they should send word back to Jerusalem. Jurisdictions meant little, especially if Vorkin and the guild may have interest still. In the meantime, it's best to keep an eye on him. After all, he is a sorcerer, and Buke won't stand a chance. So leave execution to the mages and assassins. Harlow and Stoney had returned wrapped in blankets. They had arrived quietly, and the looks on their faces told Gruntle they had heard the end of the conversation. Harlow told Buke he thought he would have been halfway back to Daruzhistan by now. He replied that he was so clean he could hardly recognize him, and told him that he had a new contract. Stoney called him an idiot and asked how many bear traps he would put his head in. Buke said until one snapped shut. He thanked Gruntle for the tea and advice and headed back to Bauchelaine's carriage. Gruntle told Stoney there was only one way to handle the situation. She said he was still a fool and he needed a woman's hand on his sword grip. Harlow asked if she was volunteering. 
Stoney replied, saying it wasn't his looks that were the problem, it was his attitude. The opposite of what Harlow had to offer. Harlow made the suggestion that they could break his nose again and fix it so he'd be good as new, and then maybe the iron petals of her heart would unfurl. She told him he was only compensating with his two-handed sword. Gruntle said he, he couldn't be more right about her having iron petals. Stoney asked what kind of trouble Buke had gotten himself into when she heard mention of mages and assassins. Gruntle realized that Stoney actually cared for Buke and said that he had a suspicion and they were only talking hypotheticals. She called his bullshit and wanted the truth. Resisting, Gruntle said Buke had talked to him. If she wanted answers, she would need to talk to Buke. Irritated, she said she would. Harlow egged her on, saying it probably wouldn't get her anywhere, even if she pouts her lips and bats her pretty eyes at him. Stoney said those would be the last thing he sees when she stabs him in the chest. She'd even blow him a kiss. Harlow asked if he heard her right. She said she wasn't in the mood. Continuing to poke the bear, he said she's never in the mood. She only smiled at him. Gruntle sighed and said not to bother even saying it. Hmm. Interesting section. Yeah. What did you think? Besides, uh, what did you find interesting? Uh, I feel like it's it's really just a setup section, uh, continuing to, I guess, get the readers to get to know these characters. You know, I mean, granted, there's not a lot of action happening here. I mean, we get a little backstory um, about some type of murders, but part of me thinks that these are the events that happened in Gardens of the Moon. Um, uh, yeah, I guess I don't remember specifically seeing that, but I mean, it obviously took place during that time of the, you know, the Gardens of the Moon when we were reading that. It might have been maybe it was a deal where it's like, you know, the next street over or whatever. Or maybe you remember like reading about some mangled corpses being found. I guess I don't, but I don't remember that in Gardens of the Moon. So that's kind of where I'm like doubting myself. Like, are they talking about the events that happened in the Gardens of the Moon? Gardens of the Moon with like, the Assassin's Guild and like the war on the rooftops, and then like even the Tistandi who were killing the Assassin's Guild members. Yeah, I guess I don't know, you know, if, if this was stuff happening alongside what we were reading about when we read Gardens of the Moon and we just didn't know it, or if it happened after the fact. Right. I don't know that this is majorly important. No, we just need to know that murders have been happening. And whether whether that's new or whether they're talking about uh, previous events uh, that we've read, I guess it's hard to say. Yeah, I think probably the biggest thing I took out of this section was Buke and just the type of person he is. I mean, he seems like he's I'm guessing he probably feels like he doesn't have anything left to live for. I mean, he lost his whole family, which would be devastating. And so now it's, he's, I think he's probably just looking for some way to redeem himself. Right. And that's why he's taken, you know, this job with Bauchelaine and Corporal and Emancipor. That's what I'm guessing too. I just, I want to know what they're up to. I thought it was funny that Gruntle was able to win a bet because he knew he was going to win because he knew more about <laughs> the two than his companions did. I thought that was clever. 
Yeah, so, kind of a conniving bastard that way. Huh? Like you got the inside info and you're <laughs> taking advantage of it, but I guess that's what you do. Yeah, it doesn't make me hate Gruntle. I, I I don't know if I have any type of adverse feelings for him. I actually kind of like him as a character so far. You know, I'm curious to find out more. I guess I'm indifferent. Uh, I don't dislike him, and I mean, I I wouldn't say he's a favorite at this point, but. It appears he's going to be around for the book unless he gets killed off sometime. But I, I do, I think just like with the backstory that we have on Buke, I'm hoping he's going to stick around for a little while because I just, I've, again, just knowing that backstory has formed a connection for me where like you, you kind of feel a little pity for him or I do, you know, he's, is he an alcoholic or did he just go out and have a bender, you know, just one night out with the boys or something like that. And, you know, he winds up in the gutter, passed out, and his, like, house blew up or burnt down, whatever happened. And, like, like that sucks. And so now, like, what do you do? Yeah, I, f- I feel for him. I definitely do. Yeah. Would I do the same? I don't really know. I don't think so. Uh, would you go on, like, a revenge circus if you lost your family? Is that what you're saying? Or, like, would you just, you wouldn't have gone out and got pissed drunk? in the first place i don't know if i'd go out and get pissed drunk i'd probably just get pissed drunk at home <laughs> you would have went down with the ship so to say right gotcha yeah um i also really enjoyed the the dick humor <laughs> i knew you i thought of you instantly when i was reading that <laughs> yeah. so and then i i thought of like oh some guys you know his sword's like a jacked up pickup truck you know he's just compensating <laughs> Yeah, he's got a big ass sword. But yeah. Really, <laughs> yeah. Well, as far as uh the section goes, those were really kind of the only things that I had. It was, you know, it was really straightforward. There's really not a lot to pick out. I think it's just kind of character development at this point. Yeah, the and I I didn't have a ton of points here. Um Maybe I might have brought this up before, but I'm wondering why we know Stoney's last name, but not Harlow's. Just, I wonder why. Are they maybe brother and sister? I guess I didn't really get that sense. I didn't uh, either, but... Because I don't know why you would say your brother's... Well, I don't know. I guess you could be giving your brother a hard time. Maybe. I don't know. Huh. But I guess I didn't think so. Um, and then my other thoughts, when Buke said he caught a glimpse of Corporal Brooch... What does that mean? Does he have like some sort of talent or like, did he see him like doing something weird or I, I don't know. I didn't know what that meant. Yeah. I'm not sure how to decipher that either. Very suspicious though. Yeah. It was kind of in a, like a sneaky way almost. I don't know. It was just one of those things that kind of caught my attention. I'm like, well, what does that, what does that mean? Like, did you see him floating above the city committing these murders before or what? Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. I don't have an answer. Uh, but yeah, those were my only thoughts that I had. Hell yeah. Well, you ready to move on then? I am ready. All right. A shack leaned against the city of Pale's inner wall. Quick men paused, looked up and down the littered alleyway, and then stepped in the yard. He heard a cackle from inside the shack. The wizard rolled his eyes and reached for the loop to open the door. A voice shrieked behind the door, telling him not to push and then called him the snake of the desert. Shrugging, he pulled the door open. The woman hissed that only fools push, and she sniffed Raraku, was it not? 
The wizard peered into the interior of the shack and exclaimed that the shack was only big enough for her. The old woman said that it was just her, and come show her what he had, and called him a many-headed snake, and the breaking of curses was her gift. She reached into her tattered robes and pulled out a wooden card. She tells him to send his words into her warren, and those words will shape, carved in, burn true. He tells her that he's not here for curses, but only questions. Scowling, she puts the wooden card back, and then explained that answers cost more than breaking a curse, and that answers were not easily found. Quick Ben asks how much. The witch said, color the coin of your questions, twelve souls. Quick tells her that the color is gold. The witch tells him that it would be gold councils, one for each. Quick Ben cut her off and said that only if she provided a worthy answer. She agrees. Quick Ben asked about Burn's sleep. And why did the goddess sleep? Did anyone really know? She tells him that he's got knowledge and he's learnt. Quickben tells her that what he's read was speculation and that no one knows, not even the scholars. But the oldest witch of Tennis just might. He asked again, why does Burn sleep? She tells him that some answers must be danced around and go and to give her another question. He sighs and then took a moment to study the ground. He finally spoke up and said that the earth shakes and molten rock pours out like blood when burns when burns stirs towards wakefulness. The witch can only say, so it was said. Quick Ben added that it was said that the destruction would be visited would visit all life if she were to wake. The witch only said, so it was said. Again. Quick Ben said, Well, she responded by saying, well, nothing, and then went on to explain that the land shakes and the mountains explode, but hot and hot rivers flow. These are natural events to a soul that is white hot, bound to their laws of cause and effect. She explains that the world is shaped like a beetle's ball of dung, and it travels through a chilling void around the sun. The surface floats in pieces on a sea of molten rock. Sometimes the pieces grind together, sometimes they pull apart. Quick Ben asked where the goddess is in such such a scheme. She explains that Burn was the egg inside of a dung, hatched long ago. Her mind rides the hidden rivers beneath our feet. She is the pain of our existence, the queen of the hive, and we are her workers and soldiers. And every now and then, we swarm. Quick asked if they swarm into the Warrens. The witch just shrugged and said, by what other paths we find. Quick told her that Burn was sick. The witch said, I, as if she knew already. He saw something in her eyes and then repeated his question from earlier and asked why Burns slept. The witch said that it wasn't time for that yet and to ask another question. He thought for a second and then said that she made them sound like slaves, as workers and soldiers. The witch explained that it mattered not to burn what one did in their lifetime. We can thrive or destroy ourselves and matters not to burn as she'll just birth another brood, and it begins again. Quick Ben tells her that she speaks of the world as a physical thing, subject to natural laws. Is that all it is? The witch replies that no, in the minds and senses of that is alive to find what is real, real to us, that is. Quick Ben told her that she just said the same thing twice, but worded differently. The witch simply said, so it is. Quick Ben then asked if burn was the cause to our effect. 
to which said that Quick wound sideways like the desert snake that he is, and to ask his question. Quick Ben then asks his question again, why does Burn sleep? The witch said that Burn sleeps to dream. Quick Ben was silent for a time, and then he finally looked her in the eyes. He saw confirmation of his greatest fears. He said that she is sick. The witch added that she is fevered, and that her dreams have become delirious, and dreams have become nightmares. Quick Ben told her that he needs to think of a way to get rid of her infection, because he thinks that her fever will cause catastrophic damage thus ruining her chances for her workers and soldiers being able to help her. She told him to think on it. He said that he may need some help. She held out her hand, palm up, and Quick Ben put a smooth pebble in her hand. She said his full name and then said that when the time comes to call upon her. He thanks her and tells her that he would. He places a bag of gold counsels between him and her and then backs away. The witch cackled again and told him to shut the door, as she preferred it to be cold. As the wizard strode down the alley, his thoughts were all over the place. One thought took precedence over the others. She preferred the cold, but most older people generally like the warmth, and plenty of it. I really like this section. I feel like I picked out so much. Yeah, yeah, definitely had a lot of talking points here. Yeah. The first one is just kind of more of a descriptor. I really like the way that Erickson described the shack that was leaning against the inner city wall of pale. I can't remember exactly how it was worded, but yeah, it was pretty. I remember liking it, too. It is said the shack leaned drunkenly against the city of pales inner wall, a confused collection of wooden planks, stretched hides and wicker, its yard, a threshold of white dust, gourd husks, bits of broken crockery and wood shavings. Fragments of lacquered wooden cards hung from twine above the narrow door, slowly twisting in the humid heat. So it's just, it gives you such a cool visual on like how the shack, you know. I kind of envisioned like, like this tiny little shack or shanty in like some poor region of our world, you know. Yeah. Um, just, just kind of cobbled together with well, whatever it, they had. It's only big enough for her, really. And uh, it was funny because she tells him to not to not push, but to pull because the doors always hit her or the door always hits her when people push it open. Like, that's how small this shack is. Yeah, it's like an outhouse. She's probably right. just sitting on the shitter. Right. <laughs> also, I'm going to bring up that I talked about in Dead House Gates episodes. She sniffed Raraku on Quick Ben. So yeah, we know he was there before. When was he there before? I remember them talking about how he like fought his way across. Like prior to anything that we've read, he was he was a part of uh I don't know what you'd call it, like the Malazan expansion or whatever into right. seven cities. Yeah, I don't think that's what she's referring to though. I think she's referring to a scent. That is more recent. Gonna disagree. <laughs> really? You yeah. think that you would think that like I don't know, I guess I always just you know how like when you know your kids walk in from outside and you can like briefly faintly smell the air? That's kind when of when like it, that when is I, when is he had time to go there? I'm sure that all will be revealed in good time. 
Okay. Well, uh, <laughs> let's let's bookmark that okay. so you can call me out later if you're right. Okay. I'm just saying. <laughs> I think that he is influencing something. Not buying today, Justin. Not buying. I think he's he's got too much other shit going on. Yeah, of course. But I mean, he can handle seven warrants at once. But we know that's not his limit. So, no, and I I think that's kind of to your next point. I don't remember for certain, but I th- thought maybe they said he could handle twelve. So I I feel like that twelve souls is a nickname for Quick Ben. It kind of like a you know I I guess yeah a nickname is about the only thing I can think of. Yeah, that's the part that I wasn't sure of. Like, I'm assuming that the color of the coin, I would imagine, would be like gold or silver, bronze, copper. But like the 12 souls thing and how that relates to currency, I, I'm not sure. Kinda I don't con- think it does. I think she just called them 12 souls instead of saying quick Ben. Oh, gotcha. That was my take on it anyways. That's a good thought. I didn't, I didn't even think of it being a nickname. So that's okay. I'll take it. Until we are proven otherwise. <laughs> yeah, I mean, maybe that's not right, but just, I mean, that's when I read it, that's kind of what made sense in my head. Right. But then also she's asking for one gold council, one for each. And then, you know, quick Ben kind of cuts her off. Is that one for each of his 12 souls or one for each question? I thought she was going to say one for each answer. And Quick Ben said, "Only if it's a good answer, you know. Like, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna give you a coin, a gold coin, if you just feed me some bullshit. Like, it's got to be a good answer." But again, she also calls him a child of Raraku, and I think this is another hint. I mean, there's got to be some meaning to it, like child of Raraku. Either this has something to do with like his upbringing, or this has something to do with current events. We'd have to go, somebody will have to remind us, or we'd have to reread the book, which, Jesus, I know we don't have time for, or re-listen <laughs> to the episode somewhere along the way, but I feel pretty confident that somewhere along the way we found out that Quick Ben, like, fought his way across the continent. I guess I I don't remember if it said he was from, like, if he was from Seven Cities? Well, yeah, I don't know. wasn't Kalam chasing him or something? I think you're right. It was something like that, but I don't know... I don't know why he would turn his back on his homeland and fight for the Malazans. I feel like this... Uh, or I guess maybe he wasn't. Yeah, he was running from Kalam. I feel like this is uh, what Crocus hears on their journey from Genabacus to Seven Cities. I think this is like one of the... the, the in the first chapter of Deadhouse Gates. Is that where we heard it? I think so. I mean, it could have been. Yeah, I don't remember. I remember somewhere we heard something about it. Yeah. I just, I think it's funny. Like, why would he put in all these hints? Like, they could totally go. They're not important to the section. They're not important to the conversation. But yet, she's calling it out. Like, uh, I don't know. Maybe you are right. Maybe he just permanently smells like seven cities. But Braraku is really specific. It's the holy desert. Well, I mean, he's a mage, so I don't know. So, yeah, I guess we'll find out eventually. Definitely. I'm sure we're going to get some more answers in this book on it. Yeah. Um, another thing that I really liked is, you know, this witch, this oldest witch of Tenez, which is the Earth Warren, from what I understand. She says that um, 
when the land shakes and the mountains explode and the hot rivers flow, these are natural events to a soul that is white hot. And I just kind of made a comparison. And I think that she's talking about making a reference to the core of our earth. Burn is the core of the world or of this world. Yeah, I I would definitely agree. I I mean, and you I I'm sure you probably brought it up in one of our previous talks on this book, but I mean, she seems like the equivalent of Mother Earth, right? Right, yeah. Um another thing that I I thought was cool just in relation to like our world is she says that it travels through a chilling void around the sun. A chilling void is the universe. So, I just, just did not catch that. That's a nice that pickup, man. Really cool. I thought that was just a nice little something, you know. Um, and then she explains that Burn was the egg inside of the dung hatched long ago. Her mind rides the hidden rivers beneath her feet. She's the pain of our existence, the queen of the hive, and we are workers and soldiers. And every now and then we swarm. I'm not entirely sure what this means, but if I had to interpret, if I had to make a left hand or a left field guess, I'd say that, you know, this is to be like our mother earth. It's the only thing that we have because cause and effect of mother earth causes devastating effects on us as a society and vice versa. The things we do cause mother earth pain. I think that's kind of what she's talking about there i would yeah i would piggyback on that um i mean because what did we see in the prologue i mean we saw all these rivers of lava and shit um and now i'm just kind of thinking this now you know why did that happen well the Talanimus were hunting down the jaghut trying to kill them all right put them into extinction and we already know that they've hunted one or two other species either into extinction or on the brink of it and uh you know what does it say later on in this chapter that She's like, whatever. She'll just have another brood. She'll just another brood. Yeah. And things will start over. So maybe that was kind of, maybe that was supposed to be the reset. Maybe. Maybe she was forced to interfere, you know. I think she's probably a little too late, but. Yeah. I think uh, maybe Steven Erickson was writing some very eloquent slipknot lyrics. Um, Maybe if we simplify this, it's just people equal shit. Yeah. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Oh, that's good. And then I like kind of his like quick Ben's response to this. He's just like, Hey, is this, do they swarm into the Warrens? And the witch just shrugged and said, by what other paths we like they find. And I was like, immediately recalled to when quick Ben and the crippled God were battling and then that hand came up from the ground and pulled him down. So that would be by whatever path he stumbled across, right? So I think that's kind of referring to that. Okay, sure. Yeah, I can get on board with that. Um, the thing that got me, and I know we talked about it just a little bit ago, but the whole, she'll just birth another brood. Now, it's lowercase, it's not uppercase, so I don't think it's it's Caladan brood, but from what I understand about Brood is that his Warren is also the Tenna's Warren. So he is, he uses the earth and to, you know, war, the Warren and all that magic and stuff. But 
I looked up brood, and the definition was a family of young animals, especially of a bird, produced at one hatching or birth. Which I find funny because the witch said that burn was the egg inside of the dung. But does that mean that burn is brood's mother? Is there a correlation there, I wonder? I don't think so, but I guess with this series, anything is really possible. What else did we see in the prologue? You're going to have to remind me specifically. I mean, we saw a brood of birds being born, essentially, with the uh, great ravens. That's fair. Yep. But I just, I, I find it funny that birth another brood, it almost kind of makes it seem like the way that burn has children is like a bird through hatching of eggs. Where that goes, I don't, I have no idea. I just thought it was interesting and cool. We know Mr. Erickson likes to pick the perfect word, so maybe that was just the right word. Yeah. So when the witch is talking about how burn is fevered, so because her she's fevered, right, her temperature will rise, causing mountains to explode, and I would imagine earthquakes and like shifting of plates and stuff. So I thought that that was really, really cool. And that kind of ties into my next point, because Quick Ben is just like, well, if she does that, then the workers and soldiers won't be able to help. And that's actually kind of like counterintuitive to what she needs, you know, right? Because if there's a violent, massive natural disasters all across the world, how many people are going to die, thus eliminating her chance of getting rid of this infection, which I'm assuming is the crippled God at this point, based on what we, we know from chapter two. Or what if it's just all these... You know, what if the people are the infection? It very well could be. It very well could be. Or maybe not all of them, but, you know, there's enough, I guess, I don't know what you want to call them, like bad guys, you know, that are causing this infection. And if you don't know who they are and you just wipe everybody out, start fresh. I, I don't know. There's just maybe that's the other side of Open's coin, Justin. Maybe. But is the crippled guy going to get caught in that? I don't think so. Yeah, he's probably too powerful. Um. It reminds me of that meme where it's just a, a shot of Earth with a thermometer in its mouth and then another planet that's wearing like a doctor's coat. And it says, you have humans. I have not seen that. It's it's funny. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, the other thing, and this is my last point, is at the very end when Quick Ben is talking about or his thought is just stuck on the fact that she prefers to be cold. And that most elderly like to be warm. Is it possible that like this witch is part Jag Hut? I mean, she's supposed to be the oldest witch of tennis alive, but Jag Hut have their own their own Warren. So I'm just I don't know. The cold part reminded me of like the Jag Huts, which may or may not be right, but still grabbed my attention. Um, I, I don't know. I guess I did not think about that. You know, whether that's legit or not, who fucking knows. But um, yeah, that's all I had for that section. Yeah, yours, I, I think that was definitely a more interesting section than my first one for sure. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I want to know where this is going. Yeah, I do too. And how it unravels too. Outside of that, I'm good to move on if you are. All right, we'll move on. Bran saw Quick Ben leaning against the wall with his arms wrapped around himself, looking as if he felt uneasy. Bran approached him and said he looked miserable, and that made him uncomfortable. 
Quickpen said he didn't want to know and to trust him on that. Paran said if it involved the bridge burners, then he had better hear about it. Quickpen laughed and said that this went beyond the complaining of a handful of soldiers. But right now he doesn't have a solution, though when he does, he'll lay everything out for him. In the meantime, he should get a fresh horse, as they've been called, to Brood's camp with Dujek and Whiskey Jack. Bran asked if it was the whole company. Quickpen said no, only them, Mallet, and Spindle. There had been some developments, but he didn't know any more than that. Bran said he would find another horse as he ignored the pain in his belly. He thought every, everything had been taking too long. The army had been at pale for months, and the city was getting tired of it. With the outlaw outlawing, none of the support they needed arrived, so they only kept the role of occupiers. The Malazan conquest worked following a systematic and effective set of rules. The army was never meant to stay beyond a peaceful transition to a fully functional Malazan government. Civic control was not what the army had been trained for. That control was best achieved through manipulation of the captured city's economy. Gaining that control meant using legal authority and infiltrating whoever was running the local black market. If you can't crush a black market, then the next best thing was to run it. And that was a job for the claw. Pran knew there were no claw here, and they could barely run the economy, much less run the city. Yet they acted as if support would arrive at any moment. Without the gold from Darujistan, Dujek's army would have been starving now. Soldiers would have been deserting. Dujek's army would disappear right in front of him. Paran thought that loyalty never survived a pinched stomach. A fresh horse was found for, for Paran, and he left the compound. The citizens of Pale had begun emerging into the streets, but none lingered near the Malazan headquarters. Blood had been spilled there not long ago, even inside. A hound of shadow attacked. It was still not fully clear to Paran as to what happened, but Tattersail had driven it off. They had been caught off guard and unprepared. That would not happen again. If it were to happen again, the Hound would likely still have its way with them, but at least they'd go down fighting. Paran found Quickben, Mallet, and Spindle all on their horses. He knew Spindle the least and ordered him to take point. He said they'd have a mess to get through when they arrived at the North Market Round. Paran told him to find a way around them. He replied that the alleys weren't safe either. Paran told him to use his warren. Just enough to make the hairs on their arms stand. He could manage that, couldn't he? Spindle said he could, but his warren would trigger things. Bran asked if they were serious. Spindle said not really, and he was told to continue on. Bran asked Mallet if he knew what was happening at the camp. He didn't have a straight answer, only that there were sensations. A real mix of power. It wasn't just Brood and the Tice Dandy, or even Kaller as he was familiar with all their power. Something old, but new. Perhaps Talan Imus. He wasn't exactly sure, but it overpowered everything else. A cat yowled nearby and took off running. More yowling followed, this time from the other side of the street. Pran shivered and said the last thing they need is a, they need is a new player. The situation is messy enough as it is. Two dogs were fighting ahead. A cat darted through them, and in the gutter next to the road were scores of rats. Ben called a spindle and told him to take it down a notch. Baran asked Mallet what warrant spindle used. Mallet replied it wasn't his warrant that was the problem, but how he channels it. 
so far, this was pretty tame, and he's seen him break up a cavalry charge on his own, so he's definitely worth keeping around. Bran thought that he could have Quick Ben take over on point, but his warn would be noticed. Not a risk he wanted to take. The same events with the animals took place in each alley. When Pran had determined they had gotten around the market, he told Spindle to release his warren, which he did. They had reached the north gate and entered the, the land that had once been a killing field. Remnants of the siege remained. Pran was thankful for the quiet, even though the air smelled like death. He could feel it seeping into his bones as they crossed. He thought to himself that he keeps finding himself riding through places like this, that he trails in Hood's wake, and it's as if it's all he has known his whole life that had been war and death, though it had actually only been a few years. It made him feel old. He reminded himself that pity would not serve him. He thought he must have inherited these traits from his parents, while Tavor must have buried these feelings deep. She was cold as a child, and even more so now that she was an adult. If anyone would be able to save their house during Lacine's latest purge, it would be Tavor. Whatever she decided to do, he didn't think he could stomach her tactics, but she was never one for defeat. He felt uneasy. Since they had been outlawed, they had, virt they had heard virtually nothing from anywhere else in the Empire. They had heard scattered rumors of a rebellion in seven cities. Pran had his doubts. He knew in his mind that Tavor would take care of Felicin, and that gave him comfort. Mallet interrupted his thoughts and said he believed that Brood's command tent was in the Tyst Andy camp, and that it appeared the parley went well. They hadn't been shot yet. Perrin agreed that that was a good sign. They approached Brood's tent, and Perrin was able to instantly recognize the two figures outside. Whiskey Jack said he needed to talk to his soldiers, and Dujek would like to do the same with him. The way things were worded put Perrin on edge. Dujek told Perrin they had news from the Empire. Bran asked how. He was told it was nothing direct, but came via reliable sources. Lacine's calling of the nobility was efficient, and she had a new adjunct. Bran nodded. He wasn't surprised Lauren was dead, and the position needed to be filled. He asked if there was any news on his family. Dujek said Tavor did what she could, but their father was lost, and their mother elected to join him. Bran thanked him and said he was less shocked than he might expect. Dujek said there was more. Being outlawed left their house exposed. It didn't appear Tavor had many options, and the cull was nasty business. Tavor must have been planning things for a month. She knew what was coming. Noble children being raped and killed. The order to have every noble child under marrying age killed was never officially given, but perhaps Lacine was actually ignorant of what was going on. Bran interrupted him and said if Felicin was dead, to just tell him and leave out the details. Dujek said no. This is what he's trying to tell him. She was spared. Paran asked at what cost. He was told that even as a new adjunct, her powers were limited, and she couldn't be seen playing favorites. She was sent to the Otateral Mines, not given a life sentence. Once things settled down, she would assuredly be retrieved. Paran said that would only happen if it didn't hurt her reputation. Dujek was confused. Paran continued... Not her reputation with the nobility. They could call her a monster for all she cared, and they probably were. Her professional reputation. For Tavor, nothing else mattered but what the court and empress see. As it was, Tavor was the one who had to deal with the situation, but Paran blamed himself for all that had happened. The call, 
the rapes, the murders and deaths of his parents, and everything Fellison must endure. It's okay, though. The children of his parents are all capable of anything. They can survive the consequences. They might lack normal conscience, and maybe in truth, they're all monsters. He thanked Dujek for the news and ignored the sadness in his eyes, then asked how the parlay went. He was told it was successful and they would leave in two days. This is uh, really kind of a sad section. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yep. The one after it's not any better either. I guess I don't remember. I'll, I'll, once you read it, I'll remember. But just going yeah. off the top of my head, I'm not, not recalling right now. Sure. I guess just starting from the top here with my thoughts, you know, Pran has this thought that basically war and death have been his whole life. And, and it hasn't. It sounds like it's been, well, I mean, where do we see him? He is like eight or nine years old or whatever in the prologue to Gardens of the Moon, right? Ish, somewhere around there, you would guess. And what do you think he is now, like 20s? Probably. About, late late yeah. teens, maybe? Yeah. So I guess, yeah, I mean, basically, it's probably most of his life that he remembers. Uh, maybe, though, not technically his whole life. It's He doesn't really know anything else. Um, and I just, I think that that would have to weigh heavy on a person's mind, seeing it's hard for me to imagine somebody getting used to seeing death and destruction but it's probably, like, unfortunately, it's probably not that unrealistic in real life. I mean, there's probably people that fought in, I'm sure, like, in U.S. history, there's probably guys that fought in World War II, Korea, and Vietnam. You know, I mean, that's, like, that'd be a, <laughs> a pretty horrible way to have to spend your life. And, I mean, you probably saw a lot of nasty business in, in that case. And now Paran, being as young as he is, just, you know... Uh, I wonder if he's ever going to know any, like, actual peace. Uh, I'm going to say no. <laughs> I, I lean that way, too, unfortunately, but it's, I don't know. You kind of hope. Yeah, it's it's tough to, like, watch Paran do this to himself. Yeah, but what, I mean, what else do you do? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, my, my next thought here, you know, where he says he doesn't think he could stomach divorce tactics, you know, she's... She is never one to accept defeat. Um, I don't know that I worded this right when I jotted it down, but I, I think he's right. I don't think he'd be, he'd probably like, if he heard right now what, in detail, what happened to Fellison, I think he'd probably be like puking his guts out. Um, it would make him sick. Yeah, I would say so. You know, I mean, you just, just think about your older sister. I mean, I don't have a, an older sibling and uh, you and I are both the oldest sibling. Um, right. I, I couldn't imagine like somebody doing something like that to my little sister. My, my little sister can take care of herself, but uh, like if I had an older sister and she was trying to, I don't know. I think he's going to be in for a rude awakening at some point if he finds out what Tavor did. Oh, if for he, sure. I mean, he's absolutely going to be in for a rude awakening, you know? And uh, I think it was like last episode or maybe even in chapter two, for some reason, I had gotten into my head that Paran already knew that Tavor was the adjunct, but this tells me otherwise. So I must have misinterpreted that incorrectly. But I guess I didn't even think of that either, that he he didn't know yet. Yeah, but also, like, the fact that he can't stomach her tactics because she was never one for defeat, It it kind of, you know, how people were talking about Tavor 
being an untested adjunct and the rumors about her being such a hard ass at the end of Deadhouse Gates. Like yeah. this kind of confirms that for me, you know? And like think about it. She won't admit defeat, whether or regardless of what her motivations are, like she's going up against her sister. And to have this type of attitude about it, like kind of being pulled between family and duty, how, what is she going to choose? If she has this kind of cold indifference, I'm going to guess she's not going to choose family because yeah. she failed at that before. I get the sense that Tavor would, like, she would probably kill herself before losing just so it meant that the other side couldn't win. Right. If that makes sense. Yeah. Um, let's see. My next point, I, f I feel like it kind of ties into your quick Ben theory. You know, they're only hearing rumors of a rebellion in the seven sittings. Like at this point, nothing yet's been confirmed. I guess quick Ben kind of knows a little bit of what's happening. Probably more than he's letting on. Right. Oh, for sure. Yeah. If the rest of them are only hearing rumors, like, is that going to be enough to warrant quick Ben? Like, because if I think he wouldn't tell them, you know, like it's like a don't ask, don't tell. Like if, if they ask like, Oh, Hey, quick Ben, is there a rebellion going on in the seven cities? You'd probably be like, I don't know, but I don't think he'd be running off to go check it out for him. Uh, you know, something like that, especially since I, I mean, I would imagine at this time, this is before Duiker meets Gessler and him and Culper at that like sea shanty on the coast before the rebellion actually breaks loose. If I had to time it, that's probably where we're at. It's just before then. That's probably, I, yeah, I like that. I think that seems, that lines up. So I think that also Quick Ben whether we're being told or not is, uh, you know, in communication with Kalam in some way, shape or form. Well, we only see them. Um, they only communicate the one time that we're told, right? I mean, on page. Yeah. Just, but even just from that interaction though, I don't get the sense that there's anything going on off screen, off page. Yeah, that's fair. But I mean, you because know. if that was the case, why wouldn't he just, you would just get more information from them. We also know from chapter two that Quick Ben has tracker stones. What's to say that these guys don't have a tracker stone? But what good would that do? It would pinpoint where exactly they are so he can do what he needs to do. But Quick Ben's not going there, though. We don't know this. <laughs> I mean, it didn't, it, it didn't happen in Deadhouse Gate, so we know that didn't happen. Yeah, we know of. <laughs> <laughs> I think you're grasping at straws here. I think if Quick Maybe. Ben showed up, that would have been. Why talk about it if it's not legit? I mean, I'm just <laughs> saying. I'm just saying. There's definitely something fishy there. I think that Quick Ben has definitely had more of a hand in Seven Cities than we are led on to believe. All right. Well, I guess we'll see if we learn anything, but I'm right. not holding my breath on it. Well, I'll say that. Well, I'm not holding it either, but it would be really fun if I was right. <laughs> You could rub that in my face then. Yep, yep. Except it should be a pie, but I'm not gonna do that. <laughs> not that uh not that convinced. No, no, not gonna do it. All right. Um, Paran, I just think, God, you fucking idiot. You know, when he's thinking to himself, he knows in his mind that Tavor would take care of Felison and that gave him comfort. I'm just like, You're such a dumbass. Like 
<laughs> I mean, I get it. It's your sister. Like you should be able to trust your sister, but man, you know, if he, when he finds out, I think he's, I think he's going to find out at some point and it's like, he's just going to go red in the face and he's just gonna, he's just, he's going to kill her. He's going to be like, how could you do this to our little sister? Like, how could you put it? Like you, you did this and he's just going to stab her, chop her head off, push her off the cliff, feed her to the wolves. I don't know. Right. Do you find that there are some some similarities between your theory and what we know about Tool and his sister? Uh, I have not thought about that. Well, he's like tracking his sister down. Well, I think that they they fought each other, right? Because Kalava killed her family, their family, right? And if what Felizin says is true about her accusations towards Tavor, and that Tavor killed her dad and her and then her mother by proximity so to speak i guess i didn't either i didn't put it together or i didn't think of it that tavor i don't i guess i didn't think she directly killed her parents like i don't think she's the one swinging the axe you oh know, or, for sure yeah i mean fellas I, I mean facing the blame on her yeah I, I mean i guess yeah she's probably responsible for the you know the actions that happened but you know she wasn't the one the headsman but uh yeah i, I don't know i guess because i didn't think we knew that Tool's sister sh- she didn't think she'd be able to kill tool i guess i didn't think that they did fight i thought she was like nervous about it she because it was it would be a pretty big risk for her to fight him because she might not win i think that the way that it was worded made it sound like she was a match for him Right, so it's like a 50-50 thing, right? Like, she could fight him, but she might die. And I I thought, that. I mean, that's how I read it. She didn't want to take that risk. But I'm just saying that, like, maybe it's possible through what we learn from history, whether it's right or not, who cares? I don't care. But if Tavor and Paran are going to go against each other, he's kind of already admitting that she's maybe a little bit more stubborn than he is as far as it would come to winning. I think, I mean, I definitely think she's more ruthless for sure, but I mean, I think Paran would come out on top. I mean, I mean, just, I mean, just the journey he's gone through so far. I mean, he had open within him and now he's got this hound's blood. So I, I feel like, and I don't even know what the fuck that's going to do, but I feel like somehow that would give him an edge up that. And just being like, you get that news on the spot I think you'd be so enraged. Um, it would be like there's a, a D and D meme uh, that I saw of a uh, like an ogre or a berserker or something like that. It's just like it's too angry to die. So I think that yeah. would be, I think that would be Gnos. You'd just be too angry to die. You'd just be like in a bloodlust. Uh, well, you don't think that Paran's got a little bit of maybe suspicion about what Tavor's done based on the way that this section ends? I don't think he has any idea exactly what happened to Felison. No. I, I mean, he knows that she got sent to the mine, but, I mean, beyond that... Well, I think Dujic explains to Paran that um, being outlawed left their house exposed, and it didn't appear that Tavor had many options outside of to keep the name of her house in good standing with the empire. So she took up the adjunct position. So I think that 
Paran understanding this, knowing who she is, may or may not be able to piece things together or at least have some suspicions as to what she might do. Yeah, I guess I I don't know, ma'am. I'm I, I think he understands that. Yeah, it's it was a bad spot to be in. Um I guess I didn't think of it in the way that she took the position to save the family, the house. Um I guess when I read it, in my mind I thought it was actually the opposite. Her family was in this position because she was the adjunct and I guess I don't know why talking out loud about it now, I guess that doesn't really make any sense. No. And I mean, even I mean, these are things that we knew in Deadhouse Gates. So it sounds like the order events would have been, you know, Haran uh, dishonored his house, so to speak. And the only way for Tavor to clear that is to become the adjunct. And then you know, to be an asshole to your little sister. But I think that based on some of the, the evidence here, is that what Tavor did, she was really looking out for the best interests of Felizen for what she was able, for the situation and circumstance that she was in. Yeah, and I guess, you know, once you send her there, you, you have no way of predicting, like, what kind of things are going to happen on a daily right. basis, right? Um, well, the Otetero minds are better than the killing of nobility that is not married well not even just that matt like like if they're you know they're killing the kids <laughs> so it's which is just wild to me like you would think oh okay well you could marry them off to like you know the nobles i guess and take them over that way um you know so why did they not kill the older people it just seems I, I mean it was it just seemed like things were flipped on their head you're, you're killing kids. <laughs> I'm like, Jesus Christ. Uh, you know, if they're not old enough to get married, you're fucking dead. Like, right. That, that was brutal. Right. Yeah, no, it is brutal. Um, I don't remember if this was my last point here, but uh, yeah, I think it is. But where uh, Dujek said that their mother elected to join them, I think was just a, a nicer way. And I'll give... I'll give our friend HC a shout out, shout out here. <laughs> she unalived herself. Right. Yes. That's, that's what I'm interpreting as well. Yeah. A lot of, uh, yeah. And I mean, it didn't seem, I mean, I'm curious to get in like to, to Vore's head. When are we going to get something from her point of view? I, I'm going to guess probably not in this book since she's over in seven cities, but like, are we going to see any of her thoughts or feelings on everything that like went down like her i guess rise to power or the right. power that she has that'll be interesting i'd be really curious about what she thinks the only other thing that i have about this tavor conversation is uh when dujek is saying that felizen was sent to the otatero mines and not given a life sentence and then he assumes that once things settle she will assuredly be retrieved well, I think that this explains Bowden. I think this is the reason why Tavor sent in Bowden to watch over her. And then when things kind of calmed down in Unta, he would retrieve her and send her back. But we all know that that didn't, that's not how the events took place. Right. Yeah, so, that's a good point. Yeah, a little tie in there for sure. Um, the other thing that I thought was just 
kind of gross was the fact that Spindle has a garment, an outfit that is made of his dead mother's hair. Uh, uh, yeah, was, I guess I didn't really talk about that, did I? It was kind of, no, you didn't, but it was disgusting. And I mean, it's not like it was prevalent to the story, but it just it was gross. And I remember he, <laughs> he's like, ah, she never washed her hair, so I'm never going to wash this shirt. I was just like, yuck. <laughs> yep. Yep. Can you just imagine how bad he smells? I mean, he probably smells like shit. Uh, yeah. Um, and, you know, I didn't have a talking point for this, but like the last paragraph, you know, where man, Paran, I don't, I, I guess I don't know why he's got such a heavy conscience necessarily. You know, that he's blaming himself for the call that took place, you know, the murders and deaths of his parents and the rapes and whatever his sister's going through. Like, He's being awfully hard on himself because I think all this stuff would have happened if he was there. The only difference is maybe he'd just be going through it with Fellison and she'd have a different experience then. Um, maybe. But I, I don't think it would have not happened just because he was in Seven Cities. Fair. I guess it's hard to say. You know, it's definitely one of those if then, then what situations, you know? Yeah. But yeah, man. I thought it was it was a good section. Lots of little gooey details. Um definitely yeah. want to read on. Yeah. Depressing for sure. Yeah. And I feel like that conversation that we had was just made it so much more enlightening too. I appreciate that. Yeah, I, I always enjoy talking to you about whatever we talk about and you know, I like that we have our talking points, but I mean, beyond that, I mean, it's just, I like that we're, it's not scripted. It's just what it is. It's real and just reactionary, like you always say. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm cool to move on if you are. Yes, sir. All right. Darkness had arrived and Paran stood on top of a vast barrow. The wind caressed his face. He had left the encampment without running into Whiskey Jack and the bridge burners. Night had a way of inviting solitude, and he felt welcome on this mass grave with echoing memories of pain, anguish, despair. He thought to himself that among all the dead beneath him, how many of them were adult voices crying out for their mothers? His thoughts lingered on how deaths make children of them all, in truth, one last time. Far below the hardened layers that make up the armor of adulthood, armor restricts the body and soul within but it also protects. Blows are stopped and feelings lose their edge, leaving them to suffer minor scrapes and bruises that eventually fade. He tilted his head back, staring up the night sky. He thought to himself that there is no escape. Memories and revelations settle in like poisons, never to be removed. He breathed in the cool air. He thought to himself that there are no gifts in suffering. Just look at the Tistandi. He could feel that his stomach had gone quiet. He thought to himself that it was just waiting for another time when he'd have another good cry. He was not a man of tears, as he had been sculpted and with a cool detachment. An education his soldiers' training enhanced. He thought about how Tavor had humbled him on those qualities. He thought of Felizen and what life she had found herself in, not in the protective embrace of the nobility. Boots approached behind him, and Paran hoped that there was no more news or revelations. Whiskey Jack put his hand on the captain's shoulder and explained that they had been looking for him, and it was Silver Fox who quested outward, 
and was able to find him. Paran asked who the fuck was Silver Fox. Whiskey Jack said that this was something for Paran to decide. Paran told Whiskey Jack that he had little time for riddles. Whiskey Jack nodded and then said he could lead him by the hand or shove him from behind. There would be a time where you'd reflect on this moment and appreciate which route I chose. Paran bit back a response. He goes on to explain that they await at the base of the barrow. It was a private meeting with Mallet and Quick Ben, the Mybe, and then Silver Fox. Whiskey Jack explains that they've both exhausted their warrants to verify what has occurred was legit. Paran couldn't help but wonder what in the fuck Whiskey Jack was trying to say. Whiskey Jack met Paran's eyes and explained that the Rivy child, Silver Fox, was Tattersail reborn. Paran gazed down at the awaiting figures. He could see an aura around the child, a penumbra of power that stirred the wilder blood that coursed through him. He thought to himself that yes, she was the one, but damn it if she ever kept things simple. Paran worries about his relationship with the child, as she is just that, a child. Whiskey Jack reveals that it's not only Tattersail in there, but Nightchill as well. Paran was taken aback by this and asked how this has come to be. Whiskey Jack said that these were better questions for Mallet and Quick Ben, and even Silver Fox herself. Paran took a step back and said that he couldn't speak with her. Paran looked down the slope and told Whiskey Jack that he sees Tattersail and Nightchill, but a soul taken as well. The creature that gave her the Rivy name gave her the power to change. Whiskey Jack's eyes narrowed, said that this wasn't good enough, as it took Quick Ben a long time to figure out Silver, so Silver Fox was also a soul taken. But yet, the captain knows already? Paran explains that he could feel Quick Ben probing him, so what has the mage found? Whiskey Jack explains that Opon has abandoned him, but something else has taken its place. Something savage. Paran tells the story of how he had dying hound's blood on his flesh. Whiskey Jack asks what else there was. Param seemed a bit confused and asked if there had to be something else. Whiskey Jack explained that Quick Ben was, has caught hints of it, and it's simply more than catching an ascendant's blood. Whiskey Jack hesitated and said that Silver Fox had fashioned the captain a rivy name. Genesend Roll, the wanderer within the sword. Whiskey Jack goes on saying that the name means that Paran had done something that no one, no one or ascendant has been able to do, and that set him apart. The commander asked what had happened. Paran shrugged and explained that when Rake used his sword and killed the hounds, he simply he simply followed the hounds into the sword. The spirits of hounds were trapped, and he thinks that he freed them. Paran asked the commander why there was significance in wandering in wandering Rake's sword. Whiskey Jack said that he didn't know, and this, this was a question for Silver Fox. He stepped up closer to Paran and warned him that not one word of this should be repeated to the Tistandi or Animander Rake, as Paran had cheated the sword. Paran asked if Rake finds comfort in his, sword, his sword's finality. Whiskey Jack said that it seems likely and they should go down and meet Silver Fox. Paran said no, and then Paran is cursed at by Whiskey Jack, as the commander explains that there is more than two of them reconnecting. There's more to it than just the two of them reconnecting, but that she holds power and Kalor wants her dead. Paran asks who stood with them in Silver Fox protection. Whiskey Jack said that Corlot 
an extension of Tistandi, and even Anamander Rake. Paran nodded and then asked what Dujek thought of all this. Whiskey Jack replied that it was up to the captain to decide. Paran wondered why it was solely up to him. Paran puts it together that it was because Tattersail would never betray them. So, first things first. Man, just the whole opening line here, just the thought of himself among all the dead beneath him. How many of them were adult voices crying out for their mothers? I just felt that opening, and even just the section in general. It just hits you right in the feels. And it's amazing how after a book away from Gnoz, you are flung right back into how he's feeling. Which is not great. He's not feeling great. <laughs> no, not at all. It's just there's his emotions are just so expansive, and you just can't help yourself but just to be overly curious you know yeah yeah you just it feels a little dark to keep wanting to like know more about it right yeah we get a little bit more on tavor here as she also has been sculpted with more of that cool detachment you know that kind of like coldness but i think we exasperated that conversation so we don't need to go back into it <laughs> all right but his thought about Felizen and what life she found herself in, um, it kind of sucks to know more about his sister at this point than he does at this point. We know Felizen's journey and her hatred for Tavor, and Felizen's assumption on what her older sister has done, but Gnose, he knows nothing. It's kind of a shitty position to be in as a reader. Yeah, because, I mean, he's... I. I can't believe he's not going to find out at some point. Like, he's going to... Man, if if Gnose doesn't come across Felicin at some point and find out everything that she went through, I'd be blown away that that did not happen. Do you think that, she, that he's going to meet her and she's going to tell him her tale? Or do you think yeah. this is going to be recollected through stories? I, well... I, I guess I don't know if he's going to meet her, but he's going to find out somehow. Maybe he'll be told by maybe fucking Heberick will tell him. I don't know. And he's certainly not going to just brush it off and be like, well, I mean, that was her life. He's going to be pissed. And he's like, man, he's going to want to murder Tavor. Like, maybe that's just because I, I think that's how I would feel if I was in that situation. But I don't know how he could have a different reaction. He's certainly not going to be okay with it. But what kind of confrontation are you going to have? I guess, sure, you could go like the high road route and be like, oh, I'm, I'm going to throw you in jail forever or something like that. But I feel like Paran's probably too emotional to do that. He's he's going to let it, you know, his emotions are going to get the better of him. And I mean, that's why I think he's going to kill her. Hmm. Maybe not. But I mean, that's, that's what I could see happening. Sure. Yeah, I can see it that way. How does it feel to have your theory just strung out over? You, I mean, you came up with this at what, like the third chapter in in uh, Dead House Gates? Um, I don't know. I, I mean, I think it's kind of cool because it's either going to be really rewarding. I'm not going to be like m mad if I'm wrong about it. But even if I'm like partially right, I'll be like, okay, well, it's really cool that I was kind of on the right track. But if I'm just completely wrong, I'll be. There's going to be a reason for whatever happens happening and it'll it'll make sense in the end i guess but only knowing 
two full books of the story and a few chapters of the third book. I mean, it's just what kind of makes sense in my head. Fair. I mean, I 100% agree with you. I'm all aboard this theory. I think that there's too many clues to to not be right. Whether the end is right or, like you said, you know, just in some way, shape, or form, you're semi-right. That's all. That's good enough for me. <laughs> I guess, well, I mean, one week at a time. We'll get there. Yeah, I mean, you picked up on the clues. So you picked up on something that I... You know, and something you read in Gardens of the Moon. So, yeah. We'll have to wait and see. Read and find out. The other thing that I thought was cool is just when he's talking about the aura around Silver Fox. Along pretty good, I feel like. Yeah. All right. Um, Yeah. uh, As he's kind of observing this aura around the child, around Silver Fox, he says a penumbra of power that stirred the wilder blood that coursed through him. Are the hounds or even Paran because of the hound's blood and Silver Fox, are they connected in some way, shape or form? Like I can't quite put my finger on how, like, is it the soul taken stuff that he talks about? Because I still think the hounds are soul taken kind of like how we got with Treach, how he shifted into a soul taken form. And then like, hasn't had a human thought in however many years, kind of how quick Ben was talking about the, the things on Picker's arm. So I still think the hounds are soul taken. They just are more animal than human at this point. I don't know how, I mean, I guess, yeah, I don't, I, I don't know. I don't have a good answer. Gotcha. I just, I mean, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know where that's going, but I just there's something there's something there. There's something there that's like drawing my attention. So and, you know, even the creature that gave her the Rivi name gave her the power to change. But is I was under the assumption that the Maybe gave her her name, but I don't remember. Um, I don't think it's I don't think that story has been told. But my guess is Pran Pran Cole gave him that name, gave her that name. Um, yeah, I guess I don't know. I mean, I kind of assumed like you that the Maibi gave her the name, but I don't know why Paran would refer to the Maibi as a creature. I don't know. I have no idea. But I, I'm assuming that alongside of being able to lead the Talani Mas, they are, she has the ability to soul shift. She is a soul, a soul taken. Well, yeah, we know that. Yeah. So what exactly she souls shifts into I'm assuming it has something to do with her name, Silver Fox. Uh, I mean, yeah, I would assume it's a fox she turns into. I mean, that would make sense. Right. Um, but another thing that caught me is Whiskey Jack explains about Quick Ben catching hints of something. And it's more than just catching an Ascendant's blood. Instead of saying Hound's blood, he says Ascendant's blood. So... Open? Uh, I think I that they're referring to the hounds as ascendants. Could be it's possible that they're the first people through the path of hands. Maybe, maybe, maybe you're funny. <laughs> um, I had to shoot my shot. That's all right. That's all that I had as far as comments. I feel like, you know, when Paran is explaining the story to whiskey Jack, I remember all that from gardens of the moon. So 
again, it's just really good how like two different books are just tying into each other so like nicely. Yes, I agree. It doesn't really feel like we had a book in between sometimes. Right. But I am, I know like, you know, I've seen things on, you know, like Facebook or wherever, where people are like, oh, should I read Memories of Ice right after Gardens of the Moon? And I mean, obviously we haven't finished the book, but I'm glad that we had Dead House Gates in between with, with even just where we are at right now. Yeah, it kind of gives you some time to think in or let let everything from Gardens of the Moon sink in. And there are also some things that accentuate the book in Dead House Gates. Like the fact that if you wouldn't have caught on that Kellenved and Quotillion are, or I mean, Kellenved and Dancer are Emma Annis and Cotillion. If you didn't read Dead House Gates, you would not know that. Unless you picked it up somehow in the first book. Right, exactly. But that wasn't his intent. His intent was for you to not pick up on that on the book. The only other thing that I'll say about this, uh, this section is... I think it's really wise of Whiskey Jack to be like, hey, you need to stay away from Anamander Rake. It's clear that he doesn't know what you did. I think that other Ascendants, once they catch word of what Paran did, are going to try to recruit him or influence him or torture information out of him or something, you know? Possible. But yeah, that's all I have to say about that. Um, I will add one thing here, and that is if you did not have a nickname, we would have had prime pickings here for you. You could have been just Isan Rule. Mm, don't like it. No? All right. I'm not saying I dislike your nickname because I think J Rule's pretty fucking sweet, but. I will take J Rule. Unless I come across something better, I am J Rule. We are both elder gods in this, uh, in this book. Good point did not think of that (laughs) all right well are we ready to march forward i say so all right they arrived quietly and only a few ticed andy were outside to take in the events sergeant ancy led most of the bridge burners to the crawl to settle the horses while corporal picker deteran blend trots and hedge slipped off to find brood's tent Spindle was there waiting at the entrance. As they entered, they knew Brood was sleeping in the back room. They'd come here to take their table back. Trots and Deteran were at the ends, Spindle and Hedge on the sides, yet they still staggered after only after only a few paces. Blend held open the tent flap, and they maneuvered the table out. They glanced back frequently, but Brood made no appearance. Picker and Blend lended their strength into carrying, yet they only made it 50 paces before they were all exhausted. Spindle said it wasn't much further. Deteran said they'll find it. Picker said she'd take that bet, but first they have to get there. Hedge asked Spindle if he could make it lighter, and asked what kind of mage he was anyways. Spindle said he was a weak one, but look in the mirror. He wasn't even sweating. Picker told them to quit bitching, They continued their argument, and Picker had to interject again and ask them which way they needed to go. Spindle said to go right, down an alley, then left. They hid the tent at the end. Deteran cut him off and said someone was probably living in it. Picker said it was the one the Rivi used to lay the Tyst anti-corpses on before they were cremated. There hadn't been a Tyst killed since Darugistan. 
Hedger asked how it was found anyways. Spindle had sniffed it out. They got the table into the tent with only an arm's length of room on each side. The cots that had been used to hold the corpses went underneath the table. They hung a lantern from the center pole above the table and admired it. Hedge inspected the table and called it beautiful. Told Pickard to round up the crew as they were going to start up a game. Hedge said it was even cuts. They were a squad now. Spindle broke in saying that that meant he had to tell the secret if they were cheating or not before. Hedge said their fortunes were about to change, so it was best to quit the belly aching. Picker said the two of them were a perfect match and asked how the game worked. It was the opposition. Both decks are real. Fiddler had better sensitivity to the decks, but Spindle should be able to pull it off. Facing Spindle, Hedge asked if he had done readings before, right? Spindle said yeah, he could do it. Hedge said he had better be able to. Cressing the table, he said that there were two layers with the deck between them. Lay a card down and tension forms. And it tells you which one the face down is. It never fails. Dealer knows every hand plays, that plays out. Fiddler, he had started to say, and was abruptly cut off by trots. And he said Fiddler wasn't here. Spindle called him a horse-brained savage and said he could do it. Picker told them to shut up as they were coming. I didn't really have a lot for this section. I just I thought it was funny that they stole their table. <laughs> yeah, I didn't have anything either. Uh, I don't really understand this game. But yeah, they it took basically six of them to carry this big fucking table, however far they carried it, silently through, you know, this camp. So, I mean, that was impressive. Right. And they're going to they're going to play their fucking tarot card game. Right. Well, I mean, from what I understand, the way they cheat is there's a uh, a deck of dragons that is littered in in like in the middle of the table, and that's how they're able to know which card it is is based on the way that the card is positioned or where it's positioned on the table or something. Kind of like how a magnet attracts a magnet. Oh, sure. If if that's kind of, I mean, I'm probably wrong, but that's from what I am understanding how they're able to cheat is that there's a deck of dragon built into the table and it essentially reveals what card is laid down, even though the card is face down. I am not smart enough to understand. I, I think maybe I kind of have an idea, but we'll just leave it there. There's no reason to continue to confuse me. <laughs> I mean, just think, think of the deck of dragons like suits on a card. That's all yep. it is. Okay. Right? High house, dark as spades. High house light is clubs, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Sure, but yeah, I mean, again, I feel like these last these two sections kind of uh, coincide with each other. Yeah, outside of the fact that I thought it was funny that they're stealing their table, and part of me wonders if Caladan Brood is actually awake, and he's just like, I don't care, take your table. <laughs> like they're going through all this work, like God, you guys can fucking have it. Right, I'm too tired to give a shit right now. Yeah. So I wonder that too. Yeah. All right. Well, next section, my last section, if you're, if you're ready. I am. Go ahead. It was near dawn when the other squads began filing out of the tents. When the last of them had left, Picker slumped down on the table. Hedge came up to the table and raised his hand. Picker told him to be at ease, and it was likely that the table had begun, become corrupted. Hedge assured them that he and Fiddler made damn sure that it worked. Picker asked if that was before or after the table was taken. Spindle told everyone to shut the fuck up. 
Spindle said that the table being corrupted actually was a good thought and told them to all help him move the cots. No one moved to do anything. Picker then ordered Hedge to help him. Grumbling, the sapper lowered himself to the ground. Together, the two dragged the cots closer. Then Spindle edged beneath the table. The mage used some sorcery to probe the underside of the table. He was able to confirm that it was definitely coming from underneath the table. One of them, well, Hedge makes a quip about there being legs under the table as well. Spindle calls them a fool and says that there is an image painted onto the underside. Spindle admits that he's unable to recognize it. Scowling, Hedge, Hedge joined the mage and asked what he was talking about. Hedge explains that they didn't paint anything under here. Hedge looked at the painting and then asked Spindle who the man in the middle was with the dog head on his chest. Spindle looks at the image and tells Hedge that he has absolutely no idea, but the whole painting looks pretty fresh. Hedge replied by saying that they should rub it off. Spindle crawled back out and told Hedge that there was no way he was doing that, as the picture was webbed with wards. Spindle met Picker's eyes and explained to her that it was a new card, unaligned and without an aspect, as he'd like to make a copy of it, but deck-sized and try and try a reading. Hedge reappeared and said that it was a good idea and could charge for the readings. Picker then commanded Trotz to take a look. He does and says that it was Rivy. Spindle said that the Rivy don't play the decks. Trotz said that neither do Bargast. Spindle said that he needed some wood, some paints, and a brush. After a few conversations between the remaining member members, Picker grunted and said to them to get out of there. So the only thing to take away from this is the picture underneath the table. I really can't think of anything else. And they briefly describe the image. And it appears that the man with the dog head on his chest, I'm assuming is Paran, right? I would agree with that, yes. But who is he in the middle of? I'm assuming guess, there's three people overall. I guess I. that's not what I thought. What would you think? That he was just situated in the middle of the card. You know, he wasn't like off to the left or the right or whatever. Maybe, but isn't that what isn't that what you would expect of all cards? Is that there's someone in the middle? I guess I would feel like if there was more than one person on the card, that it would probably be described differently. How would you describe it? That it would say that he was the middle person of the three or something like that, I guess. I don't know. But if he was just the the, the only character on the card, wouldn't it just be who the man on the card was with the dog head on his chest. Why, who the man in the middle was. Maybe that's just wrong of us to assume that uh, their cards would be like ours in our world. I think, I think, and this is what makes me go back to the pro, or not the prologue, but the epigraph. Let's hear it. You want me to, you want me to lay this down? Yes, absolutely. Okay. I do. Okay. I'm, all right, all I'm right, not right. like, I'm not like shitting on you at all. I'm just, Telling you what I thought. So if, if you have like a theory, I 100% want to hear it. <laughs> cool. Well, here it comes. So at the beginning of the epigraph, it says, mark these three. They all, or they, they are all that give shape, all that lie beneath the surface of the world. These three, Sister of Cold Nights, Draconis, and then K. Rule, right? So okay. if what we know about Gnos and the wanderer of the sword and that whole story, right? How hard is he 
essentially kind of following in Draconis's footsteps. I feel like there's a parallel between what Paran is doing and what Draconis, like what his character was supposed to be or something like that. I don't really have the deets there. Obviously, I feel like as far as this card is concerned, or this image under the table, it's Tattersail or Silver Fox, Paran, and then somebody else who is supposed to emulate Karul. I think that these are the Elder Gods, like, re-envisioned or reborn or whatever you want to call it. I feel like it's a way of getting out of the curses that Kalar's gave them in some way, shape, or form. Because clearly Kalar wasn't able to predict that Paran would be a new player in the deck of dragons. Right. He wasn't able to predict, and I feel like these are like loopholes within the curses that Kalar gave. And I feel like this issue with Burn is similar to K. Rule in some way, shape, or form as they chose similar paths. So I think whatever Quick Ben is uncovering may lead to this third person that is pictured on the, the underside of this table. Just my theory, super way outlandish, but it makes sense in my mind. Well, I, I don't really know what to think about that. I thought you were going to say that there was like four people on the card, and then I was just thinking, if you have four people lined up, you don't have somebody in the middle. Well, not right. one person in the middle. So I really didn't know where you were going with that. Um, but I think it's interesting, and I don't have anything to, I guess, throw back at you or refute against it. So I will go with it until we see something else that says otherwise. I think that they're just trying to do what was initially supposed to happen in history. I don't know. I don't know. I just I feel like they are a reimagining of the Elder Gods that we met in the prologue in some way, shape, or form. It's interesting to think about. Yeah. That was my big thing. That is what the epigraph reminded me of, was just the way the epigraph started out. And just this very simple, who the man in the middle was. The one with the dog head on his chest. I mean, I, I feel pretty confident that that is definitely referring to Paran. Right. Oh, I am too. It's just, if you're right, and it's just the middle of the card then that theory absolutely makes no sense. But <laughs> I think that I think that the, the painting on the underside of this table, there are three people. So, okay, if there's three people on there, why would they only single out the one in the middle then? Because to me, then that would say that they know who the other two are. That's my guess. But why would these, essentially these grunts, right? I mean, why would they know who they are? I don't know. Or maybe they don't know, and they're just like, oh, well, they look ordinary, but who's the one with the dog head? I mean, maybe it's just Paran's image is just the most jarring, so that's what they're picking out. Sure, I, I, totally fair. I just I just thought of that, so I was just throwing it back in your court to see what you had. So yeah, I, Not much. I had to come <laughs> up with that on my ass. So <laughs> I mean, that's what we do here. But anyway, I'm ready for you to take us home because I'm getting tired. Yeah, this is kind of getting late for us. We don't generally record later than 10 o'clock on a weeknight. Yeah. Um, but this section, man, this like when I started reading this, I was like, oh, my God, like this, this, 
I, I don't think I really jotted anything down, but I was like, holy shit, I can't wait to talk about this to you. I'm with you. proud of you for summarizing it. I know that you wanted me to do it. I, I did want you to because I'm sure you have thoughts. I definitely have thoughts, yes. All right. Well, I will get through this and then we can talk about your thoughts. I'll be excited to hear them. Hell yeah. Paran and Silver Fox stood apart from the others as the sun rose and the last few stars faded. The past few hours had been awkward, painful, and uncomfortable. Finally, mental exhaustion had arrived, and with it, an eerie calmness. Paran had gone silent, afraid of breaking that calm, even though he knew it was only an illusion. He thought about what he was told. Tattersail must be drawn forth, and he had accomplished that. When their eyes first met, it unlocked every shared memory they had. It was a curse for Paran. He could not help but think of her as a child. He couldn't think about being intimate with her. But it was more than that. There was the presence of Nightchill wrapped within Tattersail as well. It wasn't an equal relationship. Nightchill was a demanding presence. Nightchill was bitter with Teishren, the Empress, and the Empire, and Hood knew who else. He knew that she knew she was betrayed at the Enfilade at Pale. Both her and out there on the plains, her mate, Bellardin. Silver Fox spoke, saying he need not fear the Talanimus. Paran said he understood that she commanded them, but they all wondered what she planned to do with this undead army. What is the meaning of this gathering? She said, said it was simple. They gather for her blessing. Paran didn't understand why. She said it was because she is the first flesh and blood bone caster in hundreds of thousands of years. Her face changed when she said they would need the Talan Imus first. Horrors await them all with a Panian Domen. Paran told her that the others must know about this blessing and what awaits them with the Panian Domen. Silver Fox only shook her head. She said the blessing was her business and no one else's, but she must learn more before she speaks on it. She only tells him this for what they were and what they now have become. Paran names himself Jen Isan Rule. Silver Fox said it was a side of him she does not understand. Yet there's more. What does he know of the Deck of Dragons? Smiling, he said he knew almost nothing. She took in a deep breath and held it before speaking. The Deck of Dragons, a kind of structure imposed on power itself. Nobody knows who created it. Her belief, Tattersail's belief, is that each card is a gate to a warren and that there used to be many more cards. There may have been other decks. There may be other decks. Brand said she had another suspicion. She said yes. While no one knows who created the deck, there is another entity equally mysterious, another structure focused on power itself. She told him to think on the terminology associated with the decks. Houses. House of Dark. House of Light of life and death. Think of the word finnest. As the Talan understand it, it means hold of ice. Long ago, hold was synonymous with house in meaning and common usage, also synonymous with warren. Where do Jaghut draw their power? In a finnest. She looked into Paran's eyes. Tremolor is trellish for house of life. Paran thought finnest, as in finnest house. In Darugistan, a house of the Azath. He said he never heard of Tremolor. 
Silver Fox said it's an Azath house in seven cities. In Malaz City, in his own empire, there's a dead house, the House of Death. Bran asked if she believed the houses of the deck and houses of Azath were one and the same. She said yes, or that she believed they were linked somehow, and he should think on it, which he was doing, as he had little knowledge on either, or how he might be connected to either. His uneasiness took a turn and his stomach churned painfully. He was too tired to think, but knew he must. He spoke, saying it was that Calvet and Dancer had made their way into a dead house. Silver Fox told him that they had both ascended. Kellenvet is Shadow Throne and Dancer is Cotillion, the Rope, patron of assassins. Perrin was caught off guard by that statement, only able to say, What? Silver Fox said it was obvious if he only thought about it. Who among the Ascendants went after Lacine? Shadow Throne and Cotillion. Why would Ascendants care about a mortal woman? Unless they were after revenge. Perrin's mind raced, thinking back to the scene at Itko Khan. The wounds made by the hounds. Shadow Throne's pups, in truth. And from that day on, his life had been... Uh, from that day on, his life had started down a new path. On the trail of a young woman who was possessed by Cotillion. That day, his life had begun to unravel. He asked if the two had entered the dead house. Why they had not taken on that aspect. The aspect of house death, Silver Fox said she had thought about that too and came to only one conclusion that the house of death was already occupied by hood she believed that each azath is home to every gate away into every warren if you can gain entry into a house you may be able to choose kellen kellen Vett and dancer had found an empty house an empty throne and once they took their places as the leaders of house of shadow it became a part of the deck of dragons Bran struggled to understand what this had to do with him. Silver Fox continued, saying, The House of Shadow used to be a hold. It doesn't share the same structure as the other houses. It's more wild. And apart from the hounds, it has had no ruler in a long time. Bran asked about the decks unaligned. Silver Fox shrugged, saying perhaps they were failed aspects. The Azath and the deck are both in positions of order. Yet even order needs freedom, or it will solidify and become fragile. Bran asked where he thought he fits into things, as he was nothing. He wished the gods would leave him out of their plans. Silver Fox said she had thought long and hard on this. The night of High House death is Anamander Rake. But where's the house itself? Before all else, there was only Dark, and the mother who birthed all. So it must be agent. A hold or something perhaps from even before. A focus for the gate into Kralld Galane, undiscovered and hidden. The first wound, a soul trapped in its maw, sealing it shut. Bran said a soul, or legion of souls. He continued saying, before the houses there were holds, both fixed and stationary. Before settlement, there was a wandering. House from hold, hold from a gate in ceaseless motion. A wagon, burdened beneath the countless souls, sealing the gate into dark. Then he thought he sent two hounds. Through that wound, he saw the seal punctured. Silver Fox interrupted his thought, saying something had happened. A new card arrived on the deck. It was aligned yet dominant. The deck had never had a master before, but she now believes it has one. It was him. 
Paran. Paran nearly calls her Tattersail and says she must be wrong. She said she was not, and her hand had been guided in making the card that was him. Paran asked what card, and she just continued on. Was it the Azath who guided her, or something else? She did not know, and she called him the Wanderer and the Sword, and said he was birthed by accident, or for some reason only known to the Azath, but he must find the answer for his creation. He was surprised. She was. He was surprised she was sending him on an epic quest, and if she sends him on this, both she and the Azath would be disappointed. She said an unseen war had begun, and the Warrens themselves were under attack. She could feel it within the deck, even though she hasn't touched one yet. An army was being assembled, and perhaps he was a part of that army. Bran said he had enough battles to fight. Silver Fox said perhaps they are all one war. Bran said he wasn't Dujek or Brood. How was he to manage all these campaigns? It's ripping him apart. She said she knew. She could see his pain, and it broke her heart. Bran said he also had dreams. A child within the wound, screaming. Silver Fox asked if he ran from the child. He said yes. The screams? They were horrible. She said he must run to the child. Paran asked who this child was. She didn't know. She only said a casualty of some unseen war. She continued. His courage had been tested before and did not fail. Paran said there's a first time for everything. She said he is the wanderer within the sword, and the card exists. But Paran did not care. She said she didn't either, and that he didn't have a choice. Paran turned and snapped, saying he was nothing new. Paran turned and snapped, saying that was nothing new, and to ask Open how well he had done. He doubted they would ever recover. He was always the wrong choice. She stared at him and shrugged. Paran turned and his eyes fell on the Mybe. Whiskey Jack, Mallet, and Quickben. He wanted to scream, and thought that every one of them chose incorrectly, but he knew they wouldn't listen. He only said he knew nothing of the Deck of Dragons. Paran was told that if there was a time he would be taught, Otherwise, he would figure it out himself. The pain in his stomach was returning. He could not hold it back any longer. He thought that Tattersail could do no less than she had done, and that now she led and the others follow. And he thought that he was a good soldier. His mind slipped back into the realm within Dragnipper, the chained souls dragging their impossible burden, and at the heart of the wagon, a cold and dark void from where the chains came. He thought the wagon carries the gate into Kralde Glane, the warren of darkness, and the sword gathers souls to eat it. It must be a big fucking wound if it needs so many souls. Silver Fox touched his arm. He almost recoiled at her touch and thought he would fail them all. Well done. Well done, sir. Eh, I, I, sometimes I have a, like, my eyes have a hard time focusing on just like this white screen and black letters. Um, yeah, I don't know if I need to make it bigger or what, but fair enough. So, what are your questions? Uh what did I? I'll see if I have answers, but yeah, I guess you know, looking back, and you know, now I mean, we learned in Deadhouse Gates, Shadow Throne and Cotillion who they were, but it makes more sense now, you know, that who they were because they're going after Lucene. But yeah, why would any of these other gods care about her? Right. Um, yeah. You know, they got a personal vendetta against them. Also, I didn't, maybe you knew this. I didn't know this. I learned this from Nate's podcast. Apparently, apparently Cotillion is like uh, some type of a dance or like a name for a dance. 
So it's funny. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, I did not know that. He was dancer before and then he changed his name to Cotillion. Yeah, I didn't know that either. I was like, oh, that's cool. So, yeah. There's like a ballroom type dance or something, I think they said. That kind of deal. Maybe I'll have to look up, look it up. Maybe we'll post the video on our TikTok. Um, (laughs) Me and you doing one together? I mean, we totally could. (laughs) We could make a bet. Whoever loses has to dance the cotillion. Uh, we either both win or we both lose if we're dancing together. However, you want to look at it. I guess, yeah. <laughs> um, I get one of my questions though. Paran asked about the decks unaligned. I don't really get what those are. Are they just like houses or holds that don't have like a ruler, or are they like not fully formed like cards? I, I guess I didn't really understand that. From what I understand, and I could be wrong, is that you're right. They are. They are players on the deck that don't necessarily have a hold or a house. Unorganized, right? So there's kind of free agents ready to go wherever. Right. Um, And then I was thinking about, you know, they call it the first wound. I assume that's what what was at Morn. You know, and they saw a soul trapped in its maw, sealing it shut. And now I'm just kind of thinking about this, but I thought it was interesting that it only mentioned one, not two. But maybe that's because that was before uh, What's-Her-Face, Kirvana, got there with the kids. Kalava. Kalava? Yeah. I think they're referring to this as the the Warren within Dragnapur. Oh, okay. That makes sense. Yes. And I think that first soul is Draconis. So he forged his sword. Do you think it was Anamander that took it and killed him with it? I think so, yeah. I'd be curious to see if it's the swords pass through other hands first. Um, maybe. I mean, I guess it's possible. I would imagine that Draconis has had it for some time, because Anamander is what twenty thousand years old. I don't remember how old he is. We, yeah. I mean, we know he's old, but I guess I mean it makes. I guess it makes sense because how else would he? Well, I would. I mean, I guess uh, I would. It would it's probably a safe bet to assume. You're going to have to kill the guy who's got the sword to get it. I would imagine. Which plays into Kaller's curse, right? Yeah, I just think, I mean, it could have been somebody else that killed him, and then Animander killed that someone else and got it. I don't know. Maybe. But I think it's probably more likely that Animander probably killed him. But I guess we don't know for sure. Yeah, I feel like Bran. I mean, I don't get the deck of dragons. It's, I mean, it's hand-waving and mysticism as far as I'm concerned. (laughs) tarot cards like i mean fair enough i mean from what i understand is that the azath houses are just a means of transportation between houses like you think of it as a street in a neighborhood all the houses are different warrens that you can access from that street the different houses are like you know the different holds the different you know high house dark high house death etc etc as we saw, right, when Deadhouse Gates, when they're traveling, they get to Tremolar and they make their way to Deadhouse in Malaz City. And that's because the tiles on the floor, you remember that? Yep. Like Apsilar, Krakus, and they all went to, they all envisioned the Quito Khan and like the coast. And they almost went there. I don't know. That whole thing is just like, I could see where people would think like, it's a hard concept to grasp and understand. Um, well, you know what the meaning I, of Warren is, right? I think of like a fucking like wormhole kind of 
Yeah, they're they're what uh, rabbits use underground. They travel through horns. Oh, okay. I guess if I knew that, I definitely didn't remember. So I won't. I won't claim that I knew that. <laughs> but I mean, it's it kind of acts the same way, right? Like different parts of the warren are going to take you to different holds within the the hole. Okay, I mean that makes sense. I can follow that, right? Like if a bunny has a or a rabbit has a a hole in your front yard, but it it's warren travels all the way up here to me in the cities, right? Like it's essentially it's the same concept as far as like the azath you know the warrens are just the way that they can channel their energy or their magic but also it's a a representation of the path to different houses is kind of maybe how i'm understanding it it's like a different entry point then yeah so do you have any speculation as to which house or hold shadow throne took over shadow (laughs) because they took an empty one one that hadn't been ruled in a long time I mean, they said shadow, didn't they? Yes, but it wasn't shadow. They claimed it as their own and just, I'm assuming, named it shadow, shadow throne. So what they take. So this goes back to, uh, you remember what Culp's Warren is? I do not. Not, Which is the Warren of Shadow. What did they say when he was on the Salanda in what Warren were they in? Well, uh, fuck, dude, I don't remember. <laughs> okay, they were in the the Tist Edur, and because Minas is a like a child of Tist Edur, Kellenved and Dancer took over the Tist Edur hold, and that is what they claimed as their own. So what do you think they're going to do with it, or are doing with it? With who? The Tist Edur Warren. I'm assuming, yeah, I mean, they overtook it. My guess is that everybody was, I mean, that Warren or that hold has been abandoned for a long time. They're just hiding out. I think that they're extinct or they were forced to leave or something. All right. Like I said, like this, I was really hoping (laughs) you were going to wind up with this one. Um, But I I mean, I, I think I was able to summarize it, but. Like some of the stuff, like obviously I did not come to the same understanding that you did. So that's where I'm I'm glad I've got you. I do what I can. I still feel like there's uh, a, probably some confusion on my part, but I think I understand the whole Azath house deck of dragons relationship at this point. So I think, I mean, you're definitely able to paint a clearer picture for me, which I appreciate. It's just a little. You know, it's kind of the backstory into the sorcery. So, but I mean, it makes sense to me. And I know that there was that part in Deadhouse Gates where they were in that underground city, fellows in Haboric and, and Culp, and they ran across some type of hold, right? And somebody was missing from something. So, yeah. Or maybe that was Paran. Maybe they saw. Uh, a man with a dog on his chest and they were like i have no idea what that is <laughs> maybe that is at that part of the story i mean i don't know i mean i feel like that was a ways into dead house but yeah i feel like there's definitely a lot more here in this part that we could probably pick out um i don't know that i've necessarily got the 
not like saying I'm dumb, but like it just it went over here. Yeah, I mean, it kind of so. Yeah, I mean, it's for sure, definitely, some of it went over my head. But yeah, I don't know. <laughs> it's definitely, I, I think, a complex part of the story. Oh, for sure. Yeah, I feel like the biggest parts of the section are the whole deck, the Azath, you know, the holds, the houses, like their ex- Tattersail's explanation of all this stuff. And she understands the deck of dragons because she would read it. You know, we would see her read the deck of dragons and gardens of the moon. So, right. I get that Bran appearing as like the master of the deck is seems to be a pretty big deal, right? Like, because it's never had one. Like, I can recognize, like, oh, okay. Well, he's, she's going to get forced into something that he doesn't want to do. Right. So that'll be interesting to see what happens well and also if the deck of dragons are what we know them to be right like you can play them out and the the deck will kind of maybe foretell players different actions and like movements and stuff like that so now paran is predictable to people who are can Mm. interpret the game interesting i did not think about that but that's uh, that's interesting Uh, hmm. i wonder where that'll go i wonder if I wonder if that'll happen. I mean, I'm sure, but I would assume at this point nobody knows what that card is either outside of Silverbox. True. So maybe they just, I could see somebody realizing, hey, like there's a pretty major player that's just entered the game. We don't know who it is, but if we look for these moves, whatever you want to call them, we can probably get some news through the grapevine that such and such a person is is doing these things. Right. Is it also possible that these are the cards that were made for the crippled god? I mean, Paran is not perfect. He's definitely got some imperfections. This is exactly what the crippled god wanted. He wanted cards that were not perfect, that have Hmm. flaws, right? Interesting. Is it possible that the crippled god is playing some game here as well? Maybe. I definitely like this section. It definitely makes me think. I definitely can make sense of it, but at the same time, it has me extremely tongue-tied as to what it means. (laughs) You know, I understand the concept. I understand, you know, Kellenved and Dancer, the hold that they took over. Like, all of that just, you know, makes the picture so much clearer. But at the same time, it just begs more questions. That we Very don't have so. answers for. Yeah. Yeah. That's all well, I have to say about that, I guess. Yeah. I, I think I'm comfortable, uh, I guess, where the conversation went at that point. So uh, any predictions going forward? I don't know. I'm wondering if we're going to get our first battle with the Panion Doman. Also, uh, we haven't had anything with Talk the Younger and Envy yet outside of that first chapter. So I wonder if we'll come back to them at all and their journey, but yeah, I don't know. That's a good point. Uh, Yeah. I'd be interested to catch up with them. Um, I would say right now I'm probably most interested with quick Ben and where his story is going, because I imagine he's going to like turn into captain planet to save the day somehow and fix mother earth. Hopefully. 
hopefully. I have a feeling that's going to take a span over the, the series. The yeah, I don't know. Thing. Um, but yeah, that interests me quite a bit, just because I think there's a lot of possibilities there. I think we're going to see the army start to march towards Capistan. I mean, they said they're going to move. They're going to. They're leaving in two days. I can only assume they're at least heading that direction, right? I don't know how far they'll get. I know our next. I think we've got two chapters left for this sub book, and they're both like fifty-ish pages long. All right. We uh, we're gonna have some reading reading to do, for sure. Yes, we are. Yeah, it looks like book three is Capustan. So I'd imagine. I don't know if we'll get the march just yet. They might. Uh, they might. We might see some skirmishes towards Capustan. I mean, but well, I'm not saying they're gonna like get there. I think they're just they're just gonna start headed that way. Got it. Fair enough. So. Yeah, the sixth chapter is like a little over fifty pages, so it'll be it'll be cool to dive into it. Yeah, yeah, well. Uh I imagine those two will be pretty big. And then once we finish up this sub book, we'll have to figure out uh probably a time to reach out to um God, I'm drawing a blank. The YouTubers, the book club, DLC book club. Yep. Talk to them. Maybe I'll shoot them an email tomorrow and say, hey, we've got two chapters left. We, maybe we can approximate a date here. Well, sure. obviously, you, you and I will have to talk about that and make sure we can align on things, too. But yeah, and I still like I said, I know I know I've been I've just been busy, but I still would like to compile a survey type thing here to send out to our patrons and, and anybody else that might be interested. So I haven't forgotten about it. I just haven't been able to sit down and do it. So keep an eye out for that soon. Yeah. Any other thoughts there, Justin? Not at all. Follow us on YouTube. Follow us on YouTube. If you're not, check us out on Twitter. You can see like eight videos on TikTok. You can see one of Justin getting a pie, two pies in the face. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. uh, just look us up, D&J Epic Quest. You can, I, wherever we're at, you can probably find us. So Also, Google Podcasts is going away. I don't know if you heard that or not. I, I, yes, I'm bummed about that because that's where I listen to my podcast. So I guess I'll just have to deal with something else. Well, they're moving it to YouTube. Yeah. But, well, I guess I'll, I'm not going to have a choice. I'm going to have to just deal with it. You'll find something. Yeah. I'm just, I'm just an Android person. So I, I don't know. I've just Google podcasts is what I've always used. And I guess I'm just a, what's the word? A kaji old badger. I'm just, I don't want to change that way i guess i mean i would imagine that the you know google owns youtube that they would find a way for you to i mean there's tons of podcasts on google podcasts i mean for them to just abandon all that for what i'm sure that they'll migrate it to youtube and they'll probably make it hopefully a, a you know some type of experience where you can listen without having your phone on you know yeah yeah hopefully it's pretty seamless i'm sh- i would if they fuck that up, then then who knows? Maybe I'll. I don't think that's that would be the driving force that would make me switch to an iPhone. But <laughs> who knows? Yeah. All right, man. Uh, well, I think I'm gonna sneak in wheel of time here before I go to bed. Don't tell me anything. I won't tell you nothing. I don't think I'm gonna sneak it in tonight. But I hope you enjoy it. I hope it's good. I hopefully can watch it here sometime this weekend. So. All right, man. Well, well hey, good to- yeah, another good episode. Yeah, it was great talking to you. Sorry, yeah, we just didn't chat much this week. I'm sure we were both busy, but uh, look forward to next time. Yeah, absolutely, dude. Take care. Have a good night. Yeah, you too, man. See ya. Bye.